Hey there, all you Fraulines and Browlines, and thanks for tuning in to The World is My Burrito, where I take a pop culture topic of my choice, unwrap it, review the ingredients for your tasting pleasure, then wrap it up, pack it in. Now, let us begin. As always, I am your host, Corey Torgerson, and today I'm coming at you with episode five, continuing our trail of Tezuka by covering one-fifth of Message to Adolf, a spy thriller dramatized historical fiction which takes place in Germany and Japan in the 1930s and explores racism, coming of age, war, and more. But first, sorry it's taken so long to get a new episode out, uh, had several unexpected projects come up, and then was out of town, and then came back immediately to work. Uh, one of the other issues was discovering that the Message to Adolf book that I had purchased was only one-fifth of the story and not the entire thing, so that kind of threw my brain through a loop. This will be at least two parts, so you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, but let's just hop right into it. Let's get into some of the important toppings, like which day and age to put your brain in. So some of the world history... This story takes place just before World War II and sees through its end. Today I'm going to focus on the Jewish occupation of and immigration to Japan, as well as the Japanese view of Jews. Jews began coming to Japan in the 1860s, back when they were open to trade. So port cities like Kobe, Kobe is going to be very important to our story, Yokohama and others attracted Jewish businessmen. In 1912, Kobe got its first synagogue, creating a meager but firm establishment. The Great Kanto Earthquake comes around 1923 and absolutely trashes much of Japan, notably port cities where the Jews happen to reside. Kobe, with its synagogue still standing, became a beacon for the Jewish population. The natives already liked their foreign residents and welcomed their new neighbors. Pre-World War II, Kobe offered Jews an escape from German oppression. Japan having so many ports also meant Jews could get even further if needed. Once World War II got into full swing, it became a haven for thousands of Jews and even established a second synagogue. On to the Japanese impression of the Jews. While nothing I read contradicts anything else, anti-Semitism in Japan seems to exist in weird bubbles, usually controlled by local leaders, or based upon what the Japanese thought the Jews could do for them in that exact moment. No matter the resource, there would always be a paragraph about disliking Jews, immediately followed by some type of pro-Jew policy or example of how they immensely helped the Jews. The Japanese were real good at being systematically racist towards other Asians, so there was either some confusion or laziness when it came to hating Jews, and nothing ever reached the intensity of the Germans. So, why would the Japanese like the Jews? Well, in 1904, when Japan was fighting Russia for territory in Asia in the Russo-Japanese War, they needed financial help. Many countries turned them down because they didn't believe Japan could win. A Jewish banker in New York named Jacob Schiff saw an opportunity and loaned them the money. Against all odds, they won. The Japanese people as a whole figured Jews weren't half bad. There were even politicians who stuck it to the man by giving thousands of Jews visas just so they could escape oppression. In a gray area that covers no distinct time period, some leaders thought Japan could benefit from Jewish economic and political power by just letting more Jews immigrate to Japan. Jews worldwide were still known to have power. Maybe if we attract immigrants, their people will want to invest more in Japan. 
Now, as this led into early World War II, another angle was that maybe the U.S. would think this was pretty cool and not hold anything against Japan, despite partnering with Germany. Now, why wouldn't the Japanese like the Jews? In short, you can't side with German politics in the 30s and 40s without being subjected to anti-Semitism. Japanese officials were inclined to become more anti-Semitic when Japan signed the Anti-Comintern Pact with Germany in August of 36, a pledge that Japan was against the communist movement. In 1940, Japan signed the Tripartite Treaty, which further entwined Japan, Germany, and Italy. Neither of these are anti-Semitic in nature, but it's hard to snuggle with Germany in bed without inevitably disliking the Jews. In 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in Russia. For some time following, there was an international campaign saying Jews were at the core of that revolution. Now, because there were so many Jews in Japan, the Japanese were naturally afraid of the same thing happening there. Well, the Japanese had a decades-long fear shared by diplomats and civilians alike that any race with any type of established foreign political power could attempt a coup or revolution, and you could see where some Japanese would be persuaded to once again dislike the Jews. Pair this with the Japanese welcoming Jews in hopes of profiting, and you have some real confusing agendas. They are... Afraid of the Jews because the Jews might start a revolution in Japan, just like they allegedly did in Russia, but they also want the Jews to be there in hopes that Jewish political power will help them. It makes sense, I guess. In 1937, Jewish diplomats in Paris wrote home and partially blamed Jews for supplying China with arms to fight back against the Japanese invasion. Apparently, only Japan could play both sides, not the Jews. It's fascinating that even though the Japanese were sided with Germany before and during World War II, they not only didn't succumb to anti-Semitism on a national level, but had whole communities dedicated to the Jews. The Japanese political infrastructure also didn't allow German officials to oppress Jews in Japan, even if they were German nationals. It should be noted that the Japanese were not too keen on the whole Holocaust thing, they outright rejected it. Japan was actually considered a safe haven from the Holocaust. It's like the Germans came in saying, listen, we have this great plan for the Jews, yeah? We round them up at the uh, summer camp with a variety of community games. Afterwards, they are all tucked out and sleep in a pile on the lawn. And the Japanese were like, mm, nah. Another note on the negative side, uh, the Japanese didn't seem to care much about what the Germans did to Jews in Japan-occupied Shanghai. Again, super specific bubbles of racism or just lack of concern. Okay now. Once again, this story is called Message to Adolf, or Adolfuni Tsugu, which is a direct translation. It's a historical fiction that was serialized in Shukan Bunshun from January 6th, 1983 through May 30th, 1985. It is considered Tezuka's final completed work as he died just under four years later. 
For this episode, and only this episode, I'm reading from Volume 1 of 5, published in 1995, by Cadence Books Graphic Novel. Cadence is a trademark of Viz Media, a name which should ring a bell. It's 252 pages of content, including chapter pages, and has a nice four-page intro by Frederick L. Schott. For whatever reason, they took liberties to rename this series Adolf, with each volume having a subtitle. This volume is subtitled A Tale of the 20th Century. This was printed left to right, American style, so the entire volume is flipped, meaning things like Nazi salutes are always backwards. Let's crack open this jar of salsa, because here's my hot take. This was a fun read. It's fairly fast-paced, intelligently jumps around some timelines while kind of forgetting about others. It has an engaging story that takes you on an introductory tour of the time and mindset, and provides a mostly believable setting. Introductory is a good word because it's not heavy with racism, but I feel like that's going to come soon enough. There's yet another very awkward sex scene, and as with all things serialized, there are some pacing issues, though I feel for the most part there were fewer here than there have been in some of the other things I've spoken about. Take that aluminum hat off your head and wrap it around this burrito if you don't want it spoiled, because we's about to dive in. You're fortunate, though, because there's no way I can get specific on everything, leaving you with plenty of tiny nuggets of unspoiled story. This volume is two stories, split almost right down the middle. There's a lot to cover, and I'm gonna try to make it quick-like. The first half of the book follows a man named Sohei Toge, a somewhat well-known Japanese journalist within the story. He's several days into covering the Berlin Olympics when he gets a nervous call from his brother, Isao, who needs to see him the following day at a specific time to tell Sohei something very important that could lead to the downfall of the budding Nazi regime. The agreed-upon time arrives and passes before Sohei is able to leave his position. He arrives late to an apartment in complete shambles, but no brother. While looking around, he notices something in the tree below his brother's window. Guess what? It's his brother. And he's dead. Brutally murdered. The police arrive, remove the body, then tell Sohei where to meet. This is where the mystery starts. Sohei goes to the station, but they have no idea about any dead Japanese being found. Sohei checks out all of the other police precincts, and none of them have heard anything about a dead Japanese being found. A quick return to Isao's apartment finds Sohei face-to-face with an entire family who have apparently been living there for several years, as confirmed by the building owner. Through a listing in the local paper, Sohei gets a tip about his brother's whereabouts, as well as a surprise visit from a mysterious woman named Rosa, who has ties to the brother. Through his journalistic detective work, he ends up finding his brother's body, getting tortured by the Nazi party, working alongside Rosa, who is a member of the Nazi party and claims that Isao was a communist. Uh, Sohei attends a Nazi rally where Hitler speaks, visits a high-ranking Nazi official's house where he partially figures out the cause of his brother's murder, then discovers Rosa was the reason his brother ended up dead and he ended up tortured. He knocks her around a bit, gets more backstory about why she betrayed Isao, then for whatever reason, Sohei ends up sleeping with her, then runs off to Japan. 
As he leaves her building, she yeets herself out of the fourth story window in chapter. This is where the main story splits, but I'm going to insert a connecting story that's kind of shown through flashbacks. Six months prior to Sohei's visit to Berlin, he was called to cover a murder at a fictional Mount Goten in Hyogo Prefecture. There was a very popular geisha named Kinuko who was found murdered by strangulation. She worked at an inn in Arima and was popular among visiting officials and businessmen. Now to the next story. We are now in the city of Kobe in Hyogo Prefecture. A very small, young white kid is being chased and harassed by some Japanese. Another older white kid jumps in to defend his junior. He gets the tar beat out of him, but the older kids decide to leave when he refuses to cry or show any sign of being beaten. The older boy is named Adolf, a Jew who attends a Japanese school. The younger is Adolf, a German-Japanese mix who attends a Christian school with other German kids. We end up learning that the Jewish Adolf, Adolf Camille, is in Kobe to hide from oppression, while the German Adolf, Adolf Kaufmann, his father is a local German diplomat. Mr. Kaufmann doesn't want his son hanging out with a Jew because, duh. So that's kind of the common oppressive thread throughout the rest of the story. But of course, that oppression only helps these two bond. Right after the two meet, we're taken into the Kaufmann home, where two Japanese detectives are waiting to interview the man of the house about a visit to an inn in Arima six months ago. Hmm. They mention Kinuko by name, but Kaufman passes it off by saying he not only wasn't there at the time, but that when he is, it's to bring visiting high-ranking German officials. The detectives don't buy it, but get themselves kicked out. There's nothing small-town officials can do to a German representative without concrete evidence. Shortly after that meeting, Kaufman's wife confesses that, some time ago, Kinuko called saying she couldn't give something to Mr. Kaufman, then immediately said to forget about it and hung up. Once again, Kaufman says he has nothing to do with the woman's murder or any type of tomfoolery. Through the remainder of the boy's story, we're taken on a three-year trip through some young racism, a plot about the boy's learning of documents proving that Hitler was a Jew existing somewhere in Japan, and includes the family drama that follows from parents learning their children know this. Their story ends with Adolf Kaufmann being forcefully taken to Germany to join the Hitler Youth, while Adolf Camille remains in Japan. On the parents' end, Mr. Kaufmann is in some shit because his wife now doesn't trust him, uh, and because he didn't intercept these documents saying that Hitler was a Jew, he definitely murdered that chick, and the detectives and German consulate know it. Once he learns that his son knows of the Hitler birthright thing, Mr. Kaufman furiously tries to discover the whereabouts of the documents. Of course, this leads him to terrorizing the local Jews his kid's been colluding with. Japan gets some crazy bad weather, like it do, which inevitably leads to Kaufman's hospitalization and death. This is the end of Volume 1. Sohei and the families of the two Adolfs are left wide open. So, for some of the things that I liked about this uh, on Sohei's end, it is... I, I, I'm always kind of a sucker for like the noir detective thing, um, especially as presented by the Japanese, because there's just this flavor that I'm very familiar with growing up. Um, 
But Sohei's story is a lot of fun. It's cool to see all of the tragic things that happen within his story. Again, I didn't cover a lot of it, um, but he has to go through a lot to reach the end of what we see in volume one. The boys are great because it's really cool. Tezuka's not afraid of talking about problems. Mr. Kaufman teaches his son the phrase inferior race. So it's neat how you see this dad trying to steer his kid in the wrong direction. Uh, and then at one point in the story on Camille's end, um, Camille's family finds that their extended family who are still over in Germany are having more issues with the Nazis. Uh, and then Adolf Kaufman walks in and they're like, oh, it's a German, you know, get him out of here. He's probably a spy who's like screwing us over. You see a lot of this parental racism uh, strictly towards kids, uh, which was absolutely a problem people had to deal with. Hitler is only on like one or two pages in this volume, but I really enjoy how he's flavored. He is the single most absurdly expressive character in that short time. And you can tell it's not done out of love. Uh, it is definitely, it's not super, it's not over the top goofy, but it is goofy nonetheless. Um, you know, the story itself is supposed to be serious, but you know, they're making Hitler just very exaggerated. Uh, I'm pretty sure this was bloodier than Dororo, which was kind of cool. Um, the story wants you to make the story wants you to think that war is dumb and unnecessarily violent. So they, they do that. They show that. Um, and I guess the, the last thing that I really enjoyed was acetylene lamp who I mentioned in one of the metropolis episodes is the main Nazi face. And so story, uh, and he is finally playing the role that I've read. He was primarily given a malevolent villain. So now he's not just a side character, or a joke. He has a real role and I'm really hoping we get to see more of him in the future. Some of the dislikes, uh, the sex scene, part of my struggle with writing this episode was actually specifically on like how to write this, uh, as well as how to better understand its existence in the content. Um, there's nothing concrete, but it can be better understood by time and genre. Uh, the story, like I said, does have noir tones. So for the sake of shock value, the random sex scene could have been to kind of satiate that trope. Uh, at this point, the eighties, James Bond was also still hella popular. And our protagonist is a journalist with detective tendencies. Uh, the existence of the scene could just be Tezuka feeling the need to write a shocking moment, but not really knowing how. If I were to posit more, uh, Rosa was Isao's lover. With Sohei's love for his brother and Rosa's love for Isao cut short, maybe this scene was like a final you know, star-crossed goodbye. Rosa has now found some respite in life after betraying the person she cared for and betraying the person that that person cared for. Maybe this was both an apology and one final act of enjoying life before sealing her fate by committing suicide. Uh, the other thing would be the MacGuffin. As previously stated, Hitler was already accused of being a Jew three years before this was set and 50 years before it was written. Also, as stated, there have been studies since 1933. For such a dramatic story that I feel is pretty well organized in this volume, 
it's both interesting and sad that such a thin thread connects everything and is the catalyst for everything. On a more logical level of dislike, for someone who participated in war, Tezuka would understand that radicalism doesn't usually care about evidence or truth once their ball gets rolling. Hitler could have thrown a bar mitzvah and nobody would have batted an eye. And then timelines. It's difficult to tell the boys' ages, so near the end, we're told in dialogue that these characters have been friends for three years now, and that's kind of upsetting. Uh, They don't look that different between the pages, and I don't recall any other specific time changes. There are certain moments in the volume where they will specifically state, now it is this month, this day, this year, Um, but I'm pretty sure all of those were 1936. I'm going to cover some of the negative reviews. Uh, I like to check out the ratings on Goodreads um, just to kind of get a feel for what people didn't like about it, uh, as well as where some confusion might be. So for future readers, hopefully fixing something. Um, The only one-star review complained about historical inaccuracies. This book is listed as historical fiction. It's not anyone's fault. You're an idiot except yourself. One of the two-star reviews was upset that the Hitler salute, as well as other specific actions, were done the wrong direction. This was originally made to be read from right to left, but was printed left to right. And not everyone's going to know that. Uh, Manga's still, I guess, in many ways kind of viewed like comics, so if you're not familiar with it, I get it. Cool. But yeah, that's not a real problem. Several other lower-end reviews kind of sounded like many people thought this was the end of the entire story, even though it says on the last page that it is continued elsewhere. Accolades and trivia. Uh, It really only has one accolade. Message to Hitler won the Kodansha Manga Award in 1986 for General Manga. Uh, For some of the trivia, I thought I'd heard that Adolf was a popular name at one point in time. Uh, But from everything I found, it really wasn't. It peaked around 1880 and was beaten out by such greats as Karl, Gunther, and Heinz, even during Hitler's rise to power. Now, was Hitler Jewish? There was some talk about this in 1933. Hitler was not Jewish. Spit testing was done on 39 of his family members, and some did contain a rare chromosome called haplogroup E1B1B1 that can be found in Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, but it can also be found in others. In the end, it was non-conclusive. He was not a Jew. For some recommended reading, uh, definitely check out the Jewish history in Japan. You can very easily find like generic history on Wikipedia or the Jewish Community Alliance website, which is where I got a lot of my information from. Um, but if there is an option, you know, anywhere on one of those to kind of like click a hyperlink to something else do so because there's, there's so much more, like I said, it was just very, it was kind of confusing reading the history because certain things would not be mentioned unless you happen to find the right link. And again, it would just be this massive history of one particular thing that, Uh, Like a pendulum swung back and forth between uh, anti-Semitism and 
totally being cool with Jews and liking them. And so many things were happening at once, going from like the Japanese saying, oh, the Jews are great, to like a year later, two years later being like, oh, the Jews suck. And then a year after that being like, oh, no, the Jews are great. Uh, So I would absolutely encourage anyone to read further into this. So you, the listener, have you ever heard of the series Adolf or Message to Adolf? If so, what did you think about it? Uh, Do you have any further questions? I'm going to be doing more reading and chances are there will probably be more history that I end up having to uncover and cover in the episode. Um, But is there anything specific that you would want to know about the Jewish occupation of Japan? You can hit me up on any form of social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Twinbee Podcast and message me there. Uh, You can also email me at twinbeepodcast at gmail.com. So updates and shameless plugs. Um, This episode may have taken forever, but I've still been submitting to Podcasters Assemble for their Kongzillathon. They're covering uh, very specific films, Godzilla films and King Kong films uh, in support of the upcoming Godzilla vs. Kong legendary film that's coming out, hopefully coming out very soon. And as always, you can find my photo work at K Torges and Photography. Probably the easiest thing will just be Instagram. Just search the letters K-T-O-R-J and you should be able to find me. Uh, But that, I think, is all for this episode. Uh, Maybe I'll do some entertaining life updates in the next episode. Uh, I don't have a sign off.